Money Roots is made possible by the support of our sponsor, Rooted Planning Group. Are you ready to take control of your financial future? Look no further than Rooted Planning Group, your trusted partner in financial well-being. At www.rootedpg.com, you'll discover a wealth of resources and expertise to help you thrive financially. Rooted Planning Group specializes in personalized financial planning, investment management, and retirement strategies. They understand that every financial journey is unique, and they're here to guide you every step of the way. With a team of experienced advisors, Rooted Planning Group is committed to helping you cultivate a secure and prosperous future. Visit www.rootedpg.com today to learn more about how Rooted Planning Group can help you grow your money roots. Today's episode of Wine and Dime is sponsored by Rooted Planning Group, a fee-only financial planning firm that believes life is about events, supported by your dollars and cents. And we want to help you achieve your goals. Hop on over to www.rootedpg.com to learn more about the services. Every week, it's my goal to share financial information that helps you in both your life and financial vineyard. We hope it takes you from your roots to the journey of your vines and the influences in the air that have helped craft your delicious life. Like wine, life and finances have different palettes that should be celebrated and not judged. Well, welcome to the show, Kim. We're so thrilled to have you here. Uh, For those of you that missed the intro, I have Kimberly Davis here joining us today on the podcast. We are super thrilled to have her. And of course, before we get going on the podcast, I have to ask because of where you're located, is there a particular wine that you absolutely adore and love that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, um, that's a very good question, um, giving the, giving the title of the podcast. Thank you, Amy, for having me on. Um, believe it or not, I am a big fan. It's not a super expensive wine, but I'm a big fan of Hitching Post, um, which I believe comes from uh, Santa Barbara, Paso Robles area. It's affordable, it's good, it's not too heavy, and it's a really nice Pinot Noir. And if you watched the movie Sideways, I believe it was featured in that movie way back when. Well, we like affordable, being that we also like to talk about finance in this podcast. (laughs) So we appreciate that tip. (laughs) So it's my go-to wine. I really like it because it can be paired with all kinds of different food. And I'm not a big fan of heavy Cabernet, so I kind of stick to the Pinot Noir. Um, and I really like it. And it's just funny because when I watched that movie, you know, that they were there, I think, at the winery. I don't know if anyone else remembers that movie, but anyway. It's always, it's fun to be, I have a reference point too, and to to say, oh, well, I actually like the wine from that place that was in that movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's really good. So um, I just had some last night, by the way. <laughs> and if it wasn't three hours earlier, maybe you'd have some today. But yeah, the countdown is occurring. <laughs> it's got to be six o'clock somewhere in the world. Uh, I think over in uh, Europe right now. Yeah. So, um, well, the reason that we are thrilled to have you on the show, too, in addition to the wine pick that you shared with us, is you have a unique mission that you are setting out to be. Uh, you you have a background in finance as a wealth manager. And um, you also have a book that you've released. Uh, you have a website, um, um, Fiscal Feminist, that I would love for people to go out and explore. But you have a lot going on that's really around education and trying to get 
um, women feeling comfortable with money. And so I'd love to share or have you share your, your journey, uh, into this profession and your journey in life that has driven you to, to sort of develop this path. Absolutely. Um, well, you are a hundred percent correct that I am super passionate about this. Um, I think that it is super important for women to change the narrative and to become comfortable with understanding their situation with money and to take charge and become CEO of their lives, even if they are in relationships or they're married or they have partners. Um, We have to understand our finances and we also have to understand our relationship with money and how it is woven into the tapestry of our other relationships that we have with people in our lives. So if we are not on top of it, it can get the better of us. And it can, you know, it has a way of just infiltrating things in a way that we may not be aware of until it's too late. So this is something I learned through my own personal journey um, that has gone (laughs) over many years. But um, I began uh, my career as a corporate securities lawyer uh, in the 1980s. I went to Georgetown Law School. Um, I was a a kind of an economics and finance person, but I went to law school and then I became a corporate securities lawyer. So I was in that realm for several years. um, And then I uh, segued into investment banking because I decided I was tired of writing these massive S1s for uh, initial public offerings. And I wanted to get more involved in the negotiation of the deal itself, not just kind of memorializing the deal as lawyers tend to do. Um, and I did that for a while. And then, um, I got married, uh, to a man that I met at the law firm. Cause if I had met him at the law firm, I probably wouldn't have met him cause I worked about 90 hours a week and we got married and we had three, Amer- you know, three lovely daughters, um, who are now all in their late twenties and early thirties, uh, two of whom are lawyers. Uh, and, um, I then, you know, decided to step away from the workplace, uh, a little bit because, Uh, At that point, you know, he was in private equity at the time he switched over from the law into private equity. And we lived in Westchester County, New York. So the commute to New York City was quite a bit. So there was just no one to really be home with the child if one of us didn't kind of step away a little bit. But then, you know, after soon after my third daughter was born, he was offered this opportunity to go to London uh, to start a private equity group there for a major bank. And I really didn't want to do it because I was very happy in Westchester County. And then I was expecting to go back into the workforce. But I agreed to do it because it was a two-year commitment or so I was told. Um, and the long and the short of it was it ended up being, for my for my end, a 14-year commitment. He actually still lives there. And that was a decision that kind of changed the course of my life um, in some ways that were not beneficial to me because it really removed me from the ability to do my career. So fast forward, you know, 14 years later, I decide, you know, my eldest daughter is about to go to Georgetown University. Uh, my other two are in high school. And I decide that you know, with the children's uh, input, we're, the three of us are going or four of us are going to move back to the United States. And um, that was kind of the beginning of how this was all going to unfold. My husband and I at the time, we were not going to get divorced immediately. We kind of had this agreement that, you know, we were going to wait until our youngest daughter was out of high school and I was settled and, you know, had gotten my footing. 
So that was kind of how we set this whole thing up, which may sound crazy, but I just wanted to get back to the United States because I didn't, I no longer wanted to live in England. I didn't want to grow old there. And I really felt that I needed to kind of self-realize in my career. I did do some things in England. I had a fashion company and a few other things that were actually successful, but it wasn't in the realm which I wanted to work. So I, I moved here and um, to California. And shortly after I moved here, the entire arrangement that we had agreed to blew up. He, he wanted to get divorced immediately. And this caused a real spanner in the works, as they say in England. It was just problematic for me because I wasn't expecting that. And we had only lived here six months. So the children were still getting acclimated. And I was just trying to get my footing, you know, living back here after not having lived here for a long time. So we had a divorce, which was very contentious. I had to keep going back and forth to London for three years. Um, and, and I had what they call the gray divorce. I was in my mid fifties. Um, it was very contentious and I realized as I was going through the process of the divorce that I had kind of lost the plot on our finances when we were married and, you know, coming from someone who has a background in corporate securities law and was an investment banker, you would think, oh, you know, this woman's going to understand and have her finger on the pulse of everything going on with their finances. Well, it wasn't true. You know, I was busy with the children. I got busy with other things and I just figured, you know, I just let him handle it. And in the end, that was very detrimental to me. Um, I wasn't aware of certain accounts. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't aware of a lot of things. I, as soon as he said he wanted a divorce, he immediately changed all the passwords on our joint accounts, blocked me out of these accounts. I had to get an interim order against him to just pay me some money while we were getting divorced. So my lack of um, understanding of, you know, which accounts were out there and how certain things worked and not really reviewing our tax returns, you know, that carefully all led to kind of my downfall in many ways. So again, we got the first decree after several years of going back and forth in the court system in England. We, I got the decree, which was satisfactory. Um, it was enough to keep the children, you know, going to their high school, private high school, and my daughter at Georgetown and keep a roof over my head and allow me to have some space to start pursuing my own career goals. However, six months after that, he stopped paying the alimony. And I had settlement money, but half of the agreement was, settle, was alimony. And that was a problem because he literally stopped working claimed all kinds of things, went, took me back to court because he said he could no longer work and all this nonsense. Um, needless to say, after that second court case was done, he went immediately back to work. But um, that took a couple of years and I wasn't getting paid any alimony. He, um, there was nothing I could do, you know, even legally. So during that time, it was a very, very stressful and fraught time. You know, I was very stressed out. I was in complete fear that we were going to all end up on the street. Um, I kept downsizing. I was selling jewelry. You know, I was trying to do everything I could to get through the two years because I knew the court case was going to take forever because the court roster in London was just ridiculously backed up. Plus, it was incurring more legal fees. I had to get a barrister and a solicitor because there you need two. So I really was living in fear and I was paralyzed by financial fear. And then somewhere into like a year of this, um, I thought, you know, I was trying to do some jobs here and there, consulting work, but I thought I need to really make getting a full-time job my job. So I swung into action. Uh, I applied for over a hundred jobs. I mean, 
you know, I was about 55 at this point. So it wasn't like there were people lining up saying, hey, we want to hire a 55-year-old woman. And even with my resume, which was very good, I went to Georgetown undergrad, Georgetown Law School. I worked at top law firms. I was still older and it was just, you know, not happening. I mean, I got some interviews, but it took a long time. And finally, I got hired by Morgan Stanley to be a financial advisor, which was the best thing that ever happened. I wasn't quite sure about it when it started, but it was definitely in my wheelhouse of my knowledge background and all of the other things that I had done. So um, that's how I became a wealth manager. And I joined uh, the Bonson Group at the time when we were at Morgan Stanley, and then we left Morgan Stanley and became our own independent advisory firm, which is now called the Bonson Group. And I am now a managing director and partner in that group. And I've been with them now uh, 10 years, so you can do the math. Um, you know, I just turned 64. So um, the, the reality is, is that, you know, this was a period that was really fraught with fear. So once my wealth management business began to grow and um, it, it really was is a flourishing business and I love it and I'm going to be doing it for another 10 years because I think at least because um, it really feeds into my background and I have no idea what I would do if I didn't work. And honestly, I'm still playing catch up from a lot of things that happened to me financially, right? And this is a story of many women who have a great divorce. Um, but as I was um, becoming more successful as a wealth manager, I thought to myself, you know, I really don't want any woman in the entire world to ever feel the fear that I did. Um, it's just not fun. It's very detrimental to your health. Um, it's detrimental to your, you know, your psychological mind state. And the reality is, is that we as women are so busy caring for children, caring for our elderly parents or other people in our, uh, our family. We spend a lot of time not focusing on the things that are probably going to be the most important things to us, which could be our health and our finances. So that's how I came to want to create this platform. I wanted to outreach to women of all economic strata, not just my clients who you know, are a little higher net worth because obviously they, you know, they need a financial advisor. But I wanted to do something in thought leadership that affected all women to give them guidance and inspiration and empowerment to figure out a way to build their net worth, their wealth overall, to make the right financial decisions, to understand how to speak to others in the, what they, you know, who they have relationships with, like partners, boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, um, and how to you know protect themselves. So kind of on a micro level, how to deal with money in their relationships with people in their in their immediate lives and families. On a macro level, how to deal with it for you know their business, their choices and career, how to advocate for themselves, and to just really be proactive in this whole sphere of um, financial well-being. Yeah. And and I know that um, on your website, one of the things that you mentioned was the fact that, and you mentioned it when you were just giving the background, thank you for sharing so much, because I think it does put it in perspective when people hear about your journey. It's not, what you're writing isn't just coming from theory. It's coming from experience. Personal. 100%. Experience, <laughs> I mean, right? I spent so many 3 a.m., you know, I'd wake up during that whole divorce thing 3 a.m. every night, like my eyes would just like, you know, open like boink, you know, and I'd be like, oh, my God, it's 3 a.m. And I just go sit in my backyard and think, how is this ever going to end? Because I just didn't see how this was going to end well, you know. 
And it was so scary. And and that's when like I was, you know, starting this program, I thought fear is paralytic. And, you know, uh, I say in the book, 47% of women, uh-oh, do you still hear me? Okay. I don't, somehow my screen went by. Um, 47% of women f- associate the words dread and fear with thinking about their finances. Oh, that's a large percentage. <laughs> it's, it is. I and think I think, empowerment. They yeah. Think and so there fear. is a need out there, like we're doing better, but there is a lot of information out there. But again, I think, you know, when you look at like what happened in COVID and what they called the she session, right? A lot of women who left the workforce and, and didn't return right away, mainly because of the fact that they have to care for children and their, you know, remote work can be helpful in that regard, but um, it's a lot. And so when you're dealing with all these different responsibilities, you know, being proactive about your finances probably doesn't seem top of mind, but it really should be because it will make everything else go better. But yeah, fear and is a horrible thing. And I personally uh, felt it just viscerally for, for many years. You know, a couple things that stand out that I just sort of want to talk a little bit about. And, and um, we will also have a link in the um, show notes to the book. But I was reading through the, the contents of the book not too long ago. And um, in fact, it's a couple months ago. And then I just refreshed my memory just in preparation of, of today. And one of the things that stood out at me more today than I think in the past when I was reading it, and I think it's because over the last year, I've heard a lot from clients that are 55 or in that range. So let's just say between 52 and 58 that are having difficulty finding opportunities right now. So COVID, um, you know, sent them either like they maybe they were in consulting or they were in something like that. And, and the industry that they were in. I want to say let them down for lack of a better word, because now they're having trouble finding opportunities, um, you know, to, to get back to work. They're not ready to be done working. They, They actually could retire if they wanted to, but they aren't mentally ready to do that. And one of the things that stood out about stood out to me about what you were writing and what you were saying is, and I loved what you said about, I'm going to work for another 10 years, because sometimes people will say to me, you know, how long do you think you're going to work? I'm like, I don't know. I love what I do. So I'll work as long as my brain will let me, you know, exactly. this idea of retirement, I, I guess is where I'm going with this, this idea of retirement that's out there that, you know, 55 or 60 or 65, that's when we're supposed to retire. And I, and I often say, why, you know, yeah, like this. This is a very antiquated, anachronistic thought, I think. Um, You know, that was all based on lifespan when, you know, when they really, when they came up with this idea that people retire at 60 or 65, people had much shorter lifespans, right? Historically. And now, you know, if you look at what's happened recently with some of the IRS changes, um, now you don't have to take a required minimum distribution on your 401k uh, and until you're 72, uh, and then it's going to be 73 in 2023. (laughs) Yeah. And then they're pushing it out in 2033 to 75. Yeah. So that I think is indicative of the fact that whether people have to work for financial reasons, and I think a lot of people do to be able to sustain a lifestyle they want in retirement, you know, and be able to travel and deal with increased medical costs and all that stuff. I do think people will have to work longer, but just from a psychological point of view, I read about a lot of people who have retired early, you know, maybe they've sold a company or whatever, and maybe they're in their 50s. And then they always end up going back to work in some yeah. way, yeah. you know, 
It's an encore career is what we call it. Yeah. Yeah. Frequently, you know, and I think whatever it is that we all have to have purpose in life. And I'm not saying work is the only one you can get involved in charitable things, or maybe you want to become like a triathlete. I don't know. But, you know, for me, I need to feel purposeful and productive and I think it also keeps my mind engaged. And um, I'm hoping, you know, that helps me down the road uh, with respect to other, you know, other mental, you know, not being, having a disability mental, you know, mentally when I'm 88. Um, and I think it just keeps you young, you know, like I interface with a lot of young people in our firm every day. Um, I'm thinking a lot about numbers and arithmetic and, you know, all kinds of formulas every day. So that keeps my mind supple. But more importantly for me, like to have a purpose to get excited about, I would love to just keep writing and talking about all these issues um, as long as I possibly can, you know, like whether you are a big Nancy Pelosi fan or you're not, I mean, here's this, you know, 82 year old woman who is extremely vibrant and articulate. And, you know, I think that's a great role model uh, just for longevity, you know, uh, and staying in the game. So I think women... Uh, could definitely start some entrepreneurial uh, endeavors if they cannot, you know, if they are no longer in the workforce or can't stay working at the job they have, you know, that can be exciting for them. And um, I think with perseverance, um, you can find you can find appropriate work. It's not going to be maybe as easy as it was before and a lot of times uh, in your life, but it, it may depend on the industry that you're in. But um, I'm a firm believer um, it's good to stay in the mix. And I think we have to be realistic about the expenses in retirement. Um, honestly, if you want to, you know, women live longer, their medical costs are going to be higher than men's. So that's something they have to think about. Um, they also have to, you know, make sure they've got uh, or considered what they would do about long-term care if they needed to have care in the home or in a facility if for some reason they could not take care of themselves or they get dementia or whatever. So that's an additional expense that needs to be contemplated because, you know, I, I don't. We're usually the ones that survive, right? I mean, it's that's the statistics. I think it's like 30% of people over 60 something are going to have to deal with some sort of care. So, so and the, and the definition. that's something we have to think about because the old amount, you know, if you think about the amount of money that you need to retire you need to really have your expenses uh, at top of mind so that it can be a guidepost of how much money you need. And if it's invested, you know, there will be market volatility along the way. If you're invested in a certain way, that could have more of an impact on how you take money out of your investment money, you know, to survive. Um, so I think it's not, you know, a slam dunk anymore. I mean, if you retire and you're in your 50s and you have about $5 million, then, you know, you should be able to stay the course. But I think people have to really look hard, long and hard at the ki kinds of expenses that can crop up. And if people live well into their 90s, and I know I'm going through this with my parents right now, um, you know, care can be very expensive. And I think that some it's not just about the expense, although that's a big piece of it, but I also think it's about the mental stimulation. And 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 I have said many times that when I get to the point where the where I, you know, don't want to do this work or don't want to do as much of this work, I don't I just know I'm gonna go do something else. Like I I just I think it's important that you do keep the brain working and functioning, you know, for a, it, it doesn't need to stop. The clock doesn't need to stop. And I know that's why we always encourage people that have, you know, that have really focused on their career for that, that is their hobby. That is their job to start 
thinking about other things before they do retire, because if you don't have those hobbies or something to keep your mind stimulated, that we see those be unsuccessful retirements, I call it. You know, it's just, it doesn't seem like well, you I mean, could have just an think unsuccessful about it. retirement. If, but. <laughs> if you retire at 60, you know, my grandparents died at 64, my age, both of them, and my grandma, well, they were my mother's parents. Um, well, now my mother's 91, my dad's 93, yeah. but just say you retire at 60 and you live to be 95. Well, that's 35 years. I mean, how much tennis can you play? Uh, so I mean, I'm like, Hey, you know, to me, like, you know, 70 is the new 40 and you know, 80 is the new 50. Um, my dad, my dad retired fully from working at 85 and in he, you know, was still in it to win it. And he did it unwillingly, but he did it because I think he needed to kind of stop driving. But um, that was the main reason. But I am 100% in agreement with you. I think that, you know, we are, um, we need to take care of our health and we got to take care of our mind. And as you know, we are living longer. Hopefully we are healthier across the board. I believe that we are. And, you know, for women, especially, I think staying engaged, it just gives you purpose and confidence and empowerment, you know? You're not, um, you just, you know, you, you're really feeling purposeful. And for me, I believe uh, a lot in just being intentional about everything I do. And also I, you know, I have all these goals and, and desires of things I want to accomplish. So I actually feel like I'm just getting started. You know, I mean, I'm going to be hanging around as long as I can. Uh, you know, the spouting off <laughs> saying what I think. I, I think it's important for people to understand that everybody has their own location. And I know that people over the years, I'm sure you've had the same conversation where people say to me, well, when I retire, when I retire, when I retire, I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's talk about how to build some of that into while you're still working. You know, if you want to go on a European trip, let's talk about how to build that trip in, you know, to your life right now, because we're never, we're not guaranteed anything. Correct. Um, not guaranteed to be in retirement. Um, you know, there's just, there's just life is not a guarantee. So if those are the things that you want to do, if you had to work one year longer, but you could go ahead and get some of those things done now, you know, I'm not saying overspend, I'm not being unrealistic about it. And I definitely believe in saving for retirement and having that because sometimes we're forced to retire early or forced yes. to retire. And I've had a, a number of uh, women this year who've become my clients because of that situation. Yeah, yeah. But I so agree I with you on that. It, it's funny because you, you know, you, you're t touching on a point that I've been pondering a lot over the last year. And, um, you know, I want to travel. I love to travel. So travel is a, one of those things that I like to do. Um, so I've made a commitment to myself that, you know, I'm, I'm going to take one really good big trip a year and I'll do other things, you know, throughout the year. But I'm not going to not do that because I'm working. I will plan for it. I'll fit it into my schedule. I'll plan for it financially. But I want to still live my life. So working doesn't mean you're not going to live your life. It, you know, I think some people think when you're, I think when people look at retirement, they just think it's like one big long vacation, which it could be for some. But I think there's a way to, you know, have your a leisure time and do the things that really help you to relax and, and get your interests engaged. But then that will motivate. Well, in my case, it just um, then refreshes me and I want to come back and, you know, do what I do. Um, so I'm not going to wait and try to, you know, fit everything in when I retire. Maybe I'll travel more. I don't know. But um, but I think, you know, you should definitely try to find that balance. 
And that is about, it. you know, it's a marathon life, right? Hopefully it's a long marathon. So you want to be able to, you know, get, you know, your fulfillment from all these different baskets, you know? So I agree with you. I, I think a lot of people say, I'm going to do this when I retire, I'm going to do that. No, seize the moment, carpe diem, you know, live in the day. God gives you each day. It's a blessing. Fill it with everything you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to, to point out, again, just kind of referencing back to your book a little bit, one of the sections that you go over is investing. And over the years, um, I've been uh, in the financial planning services or financial services industry since 1994. So going on 20, 29 years, actually, this month. And one of the things that I've heard over and over and over again is investing is scary. You know, I don't, I, I, I don't want to lose money. Those are some of the phrases that I've heard. And, and this year in particular, uh, you know, I've been reminding clients, we've been really fortunate. I don't know about you, but we've been super fortunate in that our client base has heard me over, over time say that when markets correct, that's a great time to put extra money to work. And so we really, we, our clients have been really great about calling me saying, now you told me that when markets correct, I'm supposed to put more money to work. So it's been wonderful in that sense, but there's still a whole process about getting people comfortable and, and particularly women comfortable with investing. There's a fear of it. Uh, in my experience. And I'm, I know that that's statistics too. It's not just me, you know, in, in my experience, there's statistics out there that, that prove that your, the, the chapter that you have, I think it's chapter seven, if my notes are correct, is about investing, investing. And the way that you phrased it was that it's the catalyst for financial independence. And when I read that title, I thought, oh, that's the way people need to think about investing. It's a catalyst, not as scary, not as um, you know volatile, but as a catalyst. So I love that phrase. And I'm sure yeah. in your experience too, you're you're probably thinking the same thing. Well, I think the thing is, is that, you know, investing by definition is kind of like for some people just like the black abyss, you know, they don't know anything about it or they're a little bit afraid of it. You know, they watch movies and they hear, you know, all kinds of stuff on Fox Business and CNBC. And so there's just like a a lot of information that's just being bombarded to people that is often not um, correct. Uh, And most investors, in my opinion, all investors should look at investing as a long term proposition. Right. So no day trading, no trying to turn around a, a, you know, a profit in a month or two. Um, you know, over 90% of people that do uh, market timing don't make money, they lose money. So you have to look at it as a long term proposition. Um, And also, there are ways, you know, you can try to do it yourself. And there's definitely a lot of education out there that you can get on the various platforms. But there are some, you know, strategies that I do go over in the book uh, that you can adhere to that will minimize, you know, the risk of capital permanent capital loss. So Nobody wants to have permanent capital loss, but there will be volatility along the way, which means prices will go up or down. But diversification is very important. And thinking about your risk adjusted return is probably the most important thing you can do. So in the past couple of years, you know, over the last 10 years, there's been a bull market. Um, A lot of the technology stocks have done very, very well, uh, but they've been overpriced and, um, you know, they have leverage. So when interest rates go up, 
they get affected by it, which is why they've tubed, you know, because they have leverage, they're overpriced, and the market is saying in the future it's going to cost them more to do business because interest rates have gone up. So if people had a lot of their their investments in this kind of one sleeve, then that, you know, could mean that they were really hit hard maybe in their 401k if they were really overweight technology stocks or they were really um, kind of in almost in sync with the S&P index. So you need to diversify, you know, you need to have a combination of equities, some debt, and you also need to have maybe some alternatives. We, we believe a lot in alternatives, which are investments that are not correlated to the market. Um, but we at the Bonson Group, and I'm a big believer in this in with respect to equities, we like to focus on um, stocks that pay dividends and grow dividends. So paying dividends isn't enough and growing dividends is the key. So that uh, allows you to keep pace with inflation. So for example, if you're going to be taking money out to live on in retirement and you can uh, have a, a, a yield of three to four, well, 4%, say not return yields different than return yield is income production. Uh, if you know that that is a fact that isn't going to be changed by price volatility, then it allows you to get money out of your portfolio without selling positions and, you know, experiencing permanent capital loss. So there are ways in which to invest that will, you know, decrease the dread and the fear and can reduce the volatility of your portfolio and reduce permanent capital loss. So that's, you just need to follow certain precepts. And if you're looking for an advisor, then you need to just, you know, I do talk a little bit about that as well. Just make sure, you know, that you check into the advisor's credentials, you talk to some of their other clients, they have an independent custodian um, and you're, you know, you do your homework and your due diligence before you hire the advisor. I mean, obviously I'm going to say having an advisor is a great thing because that's what I do, but, <laughs> you, but you do need to do your due diligence because, you know, it's a wild, wild west out there. And a guy who works in an insurance company or a gal can say they're a, a, an investment advisor, but they really might not know anything about portfolio management. And they're, you know, they're kind of subbing out all the portfolio management to somebody else. Um, so it's a very nuanced business, but there, you know, I think, you know, there, if you don't invest, so I would always say, make sure you have your emergency fund in order, have all your debt down, um, and then max out on your 401ks and your IRAs. After you do all that, if you have any extra money, then you can start to invest. And there's ways to start without having billions of dollars. You know, you can start with a lot of the funds. I talk about it in the book um, to start small. And as time goes on, then you can start buying individual positions and move on from there. And then I also think financial planning is very important. Having a financial planner kind of map out your course with some cash flows um, through the course of your life to the age of 100 can help you make decisions about what you should be doing and also show you at the moment in time when you do it, where you're at and what you need to do to be able to live in retirement in the way that you want to. You know, and I think to your point about a financial advisor and you were kind of saying, you know, the, the term itself or the title itself, unfortunately, is not really a regulated title. So a lot of people can use the term financial advisor and they may not, they they may not be that overall, like what you're talking, what you're describing as a financial advisor, right? So there is a difference between somebody who is, and and by the way, I just want to say, like, we all have a purpose. Like, they're just, I don't want anybody to think, oh, she's, you know, she's crushing on a particular type of person or anything like that. But 
if somebody is an insurance person, that that's their focus, let's say that they, you know, they, they focus on insurance 100%, then they're not a, a financial advisor. They give financial advice on insurance, but they're not what we would describe as a financial advisor. So I, I love the, the comment that you made about doing your homework and really deciding what it is that you need. You know, what, what do you need assistance with? Um, do you want, I kind of always say to people, well, there's there's financial planners, there's wealth managers, there's insurance agents, there's CPAs. You know, they're all different pieces to your financial life. Um, what are you What are you really feeling like you need help with at this stage? And, and I think life? you can you can find an advisor. I mean, what I'm finding is when I have clients who come from the insurance world, where the advisor was at, you know, insurance, an insurance primarily yeah. insurance company. They have a lot more annuities than they need. I'm not a big fan of annuities, period. But I think the people that make the most amount of annuities are the people that sell them to you. Um, they're expensive, but um, they're appropriate for some people, but not not for most. But um, I think, you know, what you want is to try to find a holistic advisor. So for me, the way I do my advisory business and the way the Bonson Group operates is regardless of whether you have 500,000 or 200 million, you know, way we want to approach this is, you know, we can do family office work for ultra high net worth people. So that's a little more, more in depth. But for every person, you know, we want to do an audit of their general financial situation. So we're going to look at, you know, what is their investment profile at the moment? Um, what is they do they have insurance? Do they have long-term care insurance? Do they have a life insurance? What is their tax situation? Um, and then, you know, we tried to, and we also talked to them about their estate planning. Do they have any? Uh, will they need any? Um, everybody should have some estate planning, regardless of how much money they have. Uh, and so we actually do a holistic audit of all aspects of their financial lives. And from there, we guide them and we can connect them with other professionals that can help them with that. And we'll, we'll certainly work with them as well. Um, so try to find an advisor who is holistic and can really look at all aspects of where you're at and then guide you through this with a view of your whole, you know, your whole orbit. You know what I mean? Because it gives you a, a better uh, way of giving people advice and piecemeal. Um, so we are very holistic in our approach. And there are a lot of advisors out there that, you know, follow that that kind of paradigm. Yeah, well, I was um, going to say, I think you're one of the only other firms besides ours that actually has said something about like a financial audit. The number of people that I've interviewed over the years, the number of other advisors that I've interviewed over the years, their process for what whatever reason isn't to start with that audit. And it's, I think it's changing and I'm excited about that, but it's really rare that that's the initial process. And I guess because I've been doing this in you too, you know, for a long enough period of time that it's, it's foreign to me not to start that way. <laughs> well, the thing is, if you go back in time, right, the old school way um, of the wirehouses, you know, like the Morgan Stanley's Merrill Lynch's of the world, and just in general, you know, back in the day before, I would say in the, in the 80s and into the 90s even. Even into the 90s, yeah, when I first started, yeah. It was like stockbrokers, right? So it was a very transactional business. People would call you up and say, hey, I've got this stock, I've got this bond, you, you know, I'm going to buy it. Do you want me to buy it? And then they'd get a commission on it. And that's what this business was. It really was a transactional business. It was the buying and selling of investments, people making a commission, calling you up on the phone. It, it was just strictly really. And then I think it morphed into like more just portfolio management. 
So you'd go to somebody, they look at your portfolio and they might be a portfolio manager, but they would just be strictly looking at your portfolio and not looking at all the other aspects of your net worth or where you're at in your life, your career, how you know the whole thing. Um, and now I think as time has gone on, um, especially you know with our independent, like we're a fiduciary, but when we were at Morgan Stanley, we couldn't really say we were a fiduciary because we couldn't be because we were on a platform that would present a conflict of interest because there's product that they sell on their platform, right? So now there's this business of fiduciaries that's evolving, which I think is making it more holistic. So we're kind of a combination of wealth management advisor, but we're also, we also do family office work so we can work with multi-generational families. And, you know, we adhere to a fiduciary standard because we're independent and we don't have any conflict of interest. So we can actually put ourselves out there as fiduciaries. And so when you are looking for an advisor, I would say, you know, try to choose one that can sign a contract that says that they will act as your fiduciary. Yeah. And a lot of companies have it right on. It's not, well, not a lot. I shouldn't say a lot, but a few of them have them right on their website now. You can click right on, you know, it'll have like the, the like a quote unquote oath or some kind of agreement and um, also look for it in their language sometimes uh, within, within the agreement. So thank you so much. I have to say this time has gone so quickly and I've so enjoyed this conversation. Um, for anybody who's interested, you can go out to Kimberly's website. Um, we'll put the, we'll put it in the show notes so that you have access to it. But if you're listening and you want to um, head on over there right now, it's finance, excuse me, fiscalfeminist.com. Um, there's great book you can get on Amazon and some of the other retail stores. It's called The Fiscal Feminist. It's a financial wake-up call for women Kimberly Davis, thank you so much for being on the show today. And um, it's it's just been such a pleasure talking to you. I feel like we could go on for hours. I think there's going to be a lot more to come from you. And there's also, by the way, some great resources out on her uh, website. Um, she also has... Uh, a podcast that's out there. Uh, there's a podcast page that's out there. So you can listen more uh, from that perspective and dig into some additional information. Again, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, Amy, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I hope people do check up, out the book, The Fiscal Feminist, A Financial Wake-Up Call for Women. If you do read it, I would appreciate um, a review on Amazon if you don't mind taking a few seconds, good or bad. Uh, just like to hear everybody's thoughts. And um, I appreciate uh, your taking the time to talk to me today. It's been great fun. And now I've got hitching post wine on my mind. <laughs> it's Friday. <laughs> it's approaching noon. I'm going to work for maybe another four hours. But tick tock to the hitching post. I'm getting close. <laughs> <laughs> Might have to go see if I can't find that in one of the local wine stores or have some ships even. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we would love it if you would share this with your friends, rate us on iTunes so that more people can find us and find the assistance that they want in their financial life. Thanks everyone. And that will about do it for today's episode of Wine and Dine. You can contact Amy through the website, www.rootedpg.com or amy at rootedpg.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at rootedpg for the latest news. And if you have any questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear about, feel free to let us know. And don't forget to rate and subscribe the show wherever you get your podcasts. And again, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next time.